Welcome to the Back to Blue podcast. I'm Naka Kondo, lead editor of Back to Blue, an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation on Ocean Health. At Back to Blue this summer, we're taking a look at the new solutions, innovations, and technologies around the issues of ocean health. Today, I'm excited to welcome Benjamin Alva, CEO and founder of Azul Bio. A company that creates microbiome-based treatments and probiotics from nature that give ocean life immunity to human impact. Love that. Welcome, Benjamin. I thought maybe today we could start with a bit of background about yourself, how you got interested in this area in the first place. Brilliant. My background and my interests are in the field of cellular molecular bioengineering. So I primarily have focused in my research through companies, through academia, on creating biological technologies that are developed to combat climate change on Earth and expand human habitation in space. So where I've developed stuff for NASA, using resources on, on Mars, on the moon, um, space biology, studying genomics, and then uh, on Earth, right, developing plants that are drought resilient and other cellular artificial ecology that can break down plastic. So all these different very science-related uh, topics that are aimed at solving you know, a major issue for human habitation and our living standard as we live in symbiosis with the environment. So with that, when I first heard of the 2018 El Nino, and that was a huge event that caused massive levels of bleaching in the Great Barrier Reef. 45% of it was bleaching at any given moment, huge coral mortality, and that was a, a big wake-up call to the world. The severity of climate change on marine habitats, and that it is going to be progressively causing the imminent demise uh, of these uh, ecosystems. And I looked at this and like, yes, there's still plenty of money going into coral restoration, um, but it's not doing enough. It, like there is like all this you know, millions and millions of funding put in the Great Barrier Reef, and now all that money has been completely wiped away within that year. So obviously there is a deficit between how we just explant, we grow coral, we put them out on the reef, let them grow, but they're not resilient to these emerging threats that are impairing them. So there has to be a biological solution, a way at the cellular and ecosystem level that works with nature that can increase their resiliency rapidly without having to do a huge amount of labor, of selective breeding, which for corals will take years because they're animals. So since then, I was like, yes, how can we go through with this? So I started working you know, by myself on some ideas, you know, reading, uh, going through literature on basically getting a place to start on this. And then I solidified on the microbiome. I've experienced a lot of experience in life science, microbial engineering and ecology, creating synthetic right, ecosystems. This through the microbiome, it's incredibly complex in the coral. You have the symbiotic algae who are providing the food via photosynthesis. For the coral, you have a huge array of bacteria providing nitrogen cycling, phosphate cycling, all these other benefits, and the fungus you know, living inside the coral skeleton, living on the coral mucus, living inside inside the coral, its stomach. And so incredibly impactful, and it's, it's a super organism, really. It's, it's not a single thing. The coral is, is made up of thousands of members. So this is the most impactful route to go about this because you can look at coral and say, okay, some coral are more resilient than others. And it totally varies. You could take one genetic, one uh, type of uh, coral that has the same genetics, put it in one location, could be resilient there, put it in a new location, could be not resilient. So it's not purely up to genetics. And what is the leading proposal is that, yes, it's to do with the microbiome primarily, like genetics have some underlying benefits, 
But if you can look at the microbiome in a very resilient coral and then just purely take that and translate that to everything in the ecosystem, you're going to have a really impactful solution and be able to rapidly increase the resiliency of that community. Um, so I created a research team, intercollegiate team made up of people from on the West Coast, on the East Coast, the Midwest. And we were working on this problem, both on creating the engineering to create the experimental system to do this, um, as well as the biology itself. And then that work went and basically became the first company I started. It was one of the projects we were working on. We were this general synthetic biology company uh, to do a couple of different projects that were helping the environment. And as that company pivoted, I was the CTO of it. There was no breathing room for the coral microbiome modification of the treatments that we all that I well, I created the team originally to do. So as we pivoted away from that, there was already stakeholders, traction, investors wanting to see the solution come to light. So we spun this off into another company and then it became Azul Bio within the span of a year, pretty much of the other company because it was just moving so fast. So now we're based in New York City, completely focused on this effort, creating microbiome treatments, which we call probiotics to increase the resiliency of coral at large scale and rapidly. Interesting. So what is the business model? I'm trying to imagine who the stakeholders are of your business, that kind of thing. So we have two offerings right now. The first one is we are developing probiotics for a Pacific region. The treatment is more effective when you design it around the unique coral microbiome that exists within that section. You could say the Southern versus Northern Caribbean, Maldives versus Indonesia, or the whole kind of Polynesia sphere. And also to mitigate, we don't want to introduce anything foreign. So we take the natural symbiotic microbes, it's completely natural material, and we just use that. We know the techniques and the microbes to get to that. We just got to identify them in that ecosystem in particular. So we offer that as a service. So a lot of what we're working on now is partnering with very large NGOs who, you know, they know the problems they're facing. They're out there every day. They've been around for years and they're the most excited to have this solution and to deploy this at large scale because they know the problems. The only thing that really matters at this point is to save the corals because they're just the client is so rapid that there's like very little other solutions. So working with them to invest in the development and the piloting of these probiotics within their, their areas. And then our second offering, which is what will be the core aspect of the business, will be the just probiotics mass production and deployment, right? On large scales of nurseries, on wild reef in particular, that's where we really got to hit and go big on to preserve those environments. And the people that we sell to after in that larger scale phase is both private and public. So we are looking at a lot of the tourism industry that considers those ecological resources and those services to be of great importance to them. So a lot of coastal hotels, cruise lines, diving associations, all these groups who already are putting in money into coral restoration, some more than others. Some hotels don't own any coral. They're just on the coast. They like the ocean. Okay. Some uh, hotels, they literally own huge expanses of coral and they're like, and they, they do all their restoration work in-house and in maintaining those reefs because they basically own it. That's a lot of the island chains throughout Asia. So we have the spectrum of how much they would spend on it, but also due to the fact that this solution is rapidly scalable, 10 times cheaper than traditional core restoration and can be easily just deployed and forgotten about. That's a big thing of, of product adoption is where people, they want something that works and they don't want to spend huge volumes of time in a vertical in an area that they're not specialized in like hotels, right? So all we have to do is produce it, give it to a local partner for distribution. There's plenty of coral restorations that are very local. They would be the implementers using it, putting it out in the field. Then the uh, people buying them are all this private sector. 
So companies that care about preserving those resources. And you know, we're creating this really amazing new market because this solution is so easy to adopt as opposed to investing in a huge amount of a whole shop, people, you know, researchers, growing coral and tanks. We don't have to do that. We're just centralized in, in the United States. Wow. So now coming back to the science of how it works, is it correct if I said that basically you're looking at what defines more versus less resilient coral and then designing the product around that? Or how does the engineering of this all work? Would you be able to explain this in layman's terms? (laughs) Of course. So the process works is that we you know, we have a coral ecosystem that could be threatened, which is pretty much all of them to, to a degree. And we sample that microbiome. So we look at coral that are more resilient, that are experiencing less bleaching. There's pockets around certain coral. Sample, take a small sample from them, analyze its microbiome. So that is involved in whole genome sequencing. So getting a copy of their entire genome, and we have this reference space of everything that existed in that. Everything isn't culturable, though. That is, some things are not able to be then cultured in the laboratory, but we know everything that existed. We, we grow, we isolate as many species as physically possible. And from that, we know what species we actually were able to culture from the coral. And then through bioinformatics, we have this large database of genetic markers, so basically genes within the coral that are known to increase heat resiliency for different mechanisms through the last decade of basic coral biology. People have worked out the you know, cellular and the molecular facets of you know, how does the coral work? How does it engage with the microbiome? And all this work is there ready to be implemented in bioengineering, which is using it to, to create a solution. And we can identify very rapidly what microbe species are going to give the best benefit. We take those And then we do high throughput testing, characterization in regards to making sure they can live, they can grow together. There's no antagonism between each other and creating the and also the most effective ones and creating various probiotics. And we can do high throughput testing on that in a laboratory with coral nubbins or even coral micropropagates. So it's the tiny little mouse of the coral, which are the the smallest unit of coral, which allows us to do very high throughput testing at low cost, which the majority of coral laboratories aren't leveraging. Because it's like we're the first people to really do this, to do uh, anything with coral at a very high throughput scale. Interesting. I understand that synthetic biology, this whole emerging environmental biotech, seems to be a thriving space. Do you feel that we're at a good moment in terms of where this type of innovation is now in terms of tackling the climate crisis? And what has brought that about? Is that just about improvements in underlying technology? Anything specific that you think has made these kinds of companies like yourself possible now that maybe, I don't know, 10 to 15 years ago might not have been feasible? Yeah, I think it's the factor of both public perception as well as a need to combat these issues. It's getting worse. Climate effects are being very visible, especially over the last five years. And uh, corals have been a persistent issue. To dive into that a bit deeper is that you know, corals are the first ecosystem to really face imminent extinction from climate change. Out of the many ecosystems that exist on the planet, they're the first ones, which makes it very easy for people to accept a environmental biotech solution because it's like it's either it's there's there's nothing else. And in there it's by 2050, 90% of corals will have been eradicated. And right now it's 50%. So we're on a rapid path if no new innovations are conducted. 
On the other side is the technology. So that is where sequencing and conducting, analyzing the genomes of complex communities has only been possible in the last few years, where the cost to sequence has basically gone down significantly, almost exponentially, and now opens the doors for not just large companies, but very uh, small upstart organizations to leverage systems to understand and to characterize and to design solutions with biology, both, say, things that have already been in the lab for a long time and also completely new microbial organisms that they get from the environment, which is us, open the doors for a lot of applications. Even in the scene of, of starting a company and doing it through a for-profit way, which is for us, we're really disruptors in that aspect for core restoration because that is something that has been really controlled and, and held in academia or in a nonprofit space, in the NGO space. It's been really a domain for that and people think of it as philanthropy, but those aren't sustainable in terms of a grant runs out, the company dies. It's very small scale, especially in academia, very, very slow to develop solutions with a very focus on what on um, trying to solve the problem as opposed to you know kind of going in all these other paths and just exploring so turning it to the for-profit model where we are very much focused on developing a product getting it out there as fast as possible as, as companies want to do and then making it financially sustainable so that's going to be really critical over covid we saw thousands of core organizations go bankrupt well if from a nonprofit they just ran out of money because people stopped donating organizations like had tighter budgets and so there's a lot of people around the world that looked at that model and it's just like, if we're trying to solve this problem that's massive and it's killing off huge ecosystems, and now we just have a less capacity as we did before COVID, right? Because all these organizations are gone. Something needs to change. It needs to be bigger. It needs to be sustainable. It needs to be faster. So what are some of the biggest challenges that you face currently? I mean, you've proven that the science works. You now already have a product. So where to from here? Yeah, so our current state is that we are finalizing our current heat tolerance probiotic in the laboratory. And we have our pilots plan for November and December, our first pilots. And that will get and test the solution out in the field, which will be the first tests for probiotics uh, that has ever been conducted uh, in the environment which will be really amazing milestone. But we are right now, we are really focused on high throughput testing the laboratory, getting all that data also for both to bring in and develop a solution for the environment, but also uh, for investors as well. You know, you, you know, having all that data in the laboratory because then you need that capital to then scale operations so we can work with many people around the world just so we are a bigger organization. And then in terms of growth, we're looking uh, to basically be working in the Caribbean and in the Indo-Pacific already uh, by the end of this year, directly working on projects that are already launched. And then we have around six more projects in the pipeline that we are getting contracts for to be able to operate in more areas around the Caribbean, more areas in the Pacific. And then after we have finished our pilots, which those typically are monitored for around six months. So by middle to the end of next year, we want to then be mass producing probiotics with a partner who specializes in fermentate, large scale fermentation and bacteria, um, microbial production with a high capacity, and then get that out and start deploying at larger scale with our commercial sector partners who are purchasing probiotic to then use it in their immediate coral reefs. And then in longer term to address that customer as well, you know, we do see government as being a major customer also. Like that's where large million dollar 
contracts are going to be coming in that will be repeating every year to preserve those reefs. And we're already working with a couple different governments around the world. But in order to really address more reef, I think working with everybody who wants to have a stake, who wants to purchase probiotics to preserve those environments, we got to address all sectors. And also, you know, government contracts do take a very long time. So it's almost like an insurance policy that you can that you have a commercial market. <laughs> are you able to tell us who those governments that you're already working with are? Yeah, one is the uh, the Maldives and then the Mexican government. I had one follow up question regarding the coral restoration projects you've mentioned earlier. So the NGO type of projects, the smaller scale ones, how have they been doing? Are they transplanting? I mean, we're reading about moving corals into different areas where the water is cooler. How do you see these types of interventions? Yeah, so uh, I guess you could say alternative solutions, selective breeding. So looking at corals, trying to take more heroes and corals, basically to conduct sexual reproduction and cross them with species that are not as resilient, to try to create a more resilient species. Takes a really long time to to conduct this. Very hard to even the science for really controlling sexual reproduction is just is at it's still at its very infancy. It's very hard to make them reproduce just uh, on demand. And then acclimation, so taking coral, acclimating in hot temperatures for a long duration of time. It's very debatable how long that lasts in the environment because once you take them out of that condition, put them out, it's very transient. It's not permanent. Those are kind of the main pathways forward in regards outside of leveraging the microbiome. But for immediate treatments during a bleaching event, a lot of what happens is that really you can only save the nurseries. Organizations have their nurseries, either they have a thermocline, so that means they have a temperature gradient from the bed of the sea to the surface of the ocean, and they can lower their nurseries to cooler waters, and that could protect them. Sometimes you have a lot of warming, that's not going to be as very optimal, and a lot of places don't have thermoclines. So it's not an option for them. Gene banking is the other option where they take the corals, all of the corals that they can even from the environment, because they look at genetically diverse species, they rip them out of their environment, bring them to land, and they just put them in tanks on land as large scales as possible. And that's what they've been doing in the Florida Keys over the last month. They have had critical bleaching, right? Just 100% mortality of coral in various locations throughout the Florida Keys, bleaching throughout the entire ecosystem. Only 2% of the coral reef coverage is still left over the last couple decades. That will most likely be the first area to lose almost all of its coral in any meaningful way. We are working with uh, a few different partners in the Florida Keys to develop a solution. So hopefully we can have that out there as soon as possible. But yeah, I know it's extremely resource intensive process. You have to have divers going out there, taking them out, identifying coal and bring them to land and shade them and then kind of take care of them very precisely in tanks on land. And as you can imagine, that's not a sustainable approach because you're just putting them in a zoo pretty much at high capacity. That's not a long-term solution. You can only save a very, very small fraction of coral by doing this. That's the current response by organizations like CRF, which is the biggest coral restoration org in the Western Hemisphere. And that's what they've been doing in the Florida Keys. At the very least, it saves genetic diversity to an extent. And maybe you can reproduce those corals in a lab and then explant them at a future date, save their genetics for the future. But it's like it's keeping coral in the environment and going forward in the future is going to be more and more challenging. So that date of, of when we can bring them back out is farther and farther out. So one final question on the investor community. Is that primarily philanthropic investors, I presume? Or are there some kind of venture capital and more conventional investors also involved? 
Is there basically anything you could share about your own fundraising? Yeah, I'll um, you know detail that in the last five years, well, in the last 10 years, VC investment has basically increased by more than a magnitude. I think we're going into a drought and maybe returning to kind of normal levels. It was reached its fever pitch in 2021 in regards to massive, just frothy investments, huge valuations. But now it's going to be, I think, declining fairly rapidly over the next couple of years. However, it's still a huge interest for investors developed around solutions that are working to save the planet. Because I think a lot of people putting into these funds, their aim is to, yes, that you, they want to make their money back because they're it's still like you know a, a business pretty much, right? They, even the, the venture funds. But at the end of the day, it's like they want to make an impact with their money at this point in time. So there's all these funds that are looking to invest in companies that are definitely not doing anything negative, but optimally that are benefiting the environment. So there's and for us, given our unique model and kind of our niche and the huge potential for growth that we have, we've seen a massive amount of interest from all kinds of investors, from software as a service um, VCs to the impact VCs. But for us, the one challenge that sometimes we have is then is changing that mindset to, yes, this is something that is commercially sustainable. It's like, yes, the mission is, is 100% there. Everybody loves the mission, of course. And then just getting to that final milestone of changing that mindset that it can be sustainable and that the market is there just because it's basically creating a new market. That's always sometimes challenging with new technologies where you have to create a demand that wasn't there previously. And it needs to be something that is immediately like the users see it and they'd be like, yes, like we need this. And this is what we're developing where there's massive amounts of need. And now it's just to prove that out and scale and going to market over the next couple of months here. So I think it's very interesting, very dynamic, very positive, but venture capital will always be venture capital and will be sometimes fickle at the end of the day. So <laughs> That was amazing. Thank you so much, Ben. That has been a really interesting discussion and helped us deepen our understanding of this topic. And thank you for listening. Back to Blue. An initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation are hoping to spearhead a coordinated global response to marine pollution and design a roadmap by 2025 to close the marine pollution data gap. To learn more, download our discussions paper, The Zero Pollution Ocean, A Call to Close the Evidence Gap. Do visit our website, backtoblueinitiative.com.